And one of the reasons that I don't like that language is because it seems to suggest that there's somehow some kind of end. Like I get to the end of working through my issues. Or somebody will say, well, I don't want to get into a relationship until I have X figured out. And first of all, I don't know what that means. I, I understand that perhaps somebody would like to maybe heal from something or maybe they went through a bad relationship and they don't want to get into a new one you know, feeling as vulnerable, but I can't tell you how many stories I hear from the couples I work with where things are not that calculated. There isn't one day where we're like, okay, now I'm completely healed and normal and a fully functioning human being, and I'm going to set out and meet some other perfectly healed and fully functioning human being who has done the right amount of therapy, and we're going to form this beautiful marriage together because we're two fully functioning normal human beings. No, that's not how life works. Often, People meet quite, as they say in French, par hasard, you know, quite inadvertently. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 16. I've spent the last little while focusing on parenting, but really just looking at theories in psychology that support our understanding of human development and how that can inform us as parents when we're clear and grounded to either make decisions that shift our behavior or to reflect on them with our children. And it was really a great pleasure to have my son Gabriel on the podcast last week. But today, I wanted to share that clinically in my, in my practice and my thinking, I have found myself at times returning to some of the foundations of my own training. Something that scares me from time to time is the way that we can glom onto theoretical frameworks and forget that actually they are a moment in time. For instance, attachment theory has become incredibly popular right now. And so when it comes to relationships and understanding ourselves, I see a tremendous amount of chatter about safe attachment, avoidant attachment, anxious attachment, mixed states. And if this means nothing to you, don't worry about it. I'm just holding it up more as a mirror to the way that we in various times in history, use theories and certain schemas to try to understand the human experience. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist who I studied for many years, he was actually the one who came up with psychological types, which informed a test that many of you are probably familiar with called the Myers-Briggs, which became the most popular corporate assessment tool for personality, at least in America, for many, many years. 
And what's interesting is that these tools sort of get co-opted for productivity. So in the case of the Myers-Briggs, it was used to try to understand how to make teams work better together. And so if you discovered that certain people were extroverts and certain people were introverts and certain people led with their thinking functions as opposed to their feeling functions, then, well, you might understand why there is friction in teams and people are not working as efficiently together as they can. A huge piece, though, I think gets missed when we oversimplify and we label human behavior. With regard to the Myers-Briggs, one of Carl Jung's most singular points around that was the fact that it wasn't so much that you discover that somebody is an extrovert. That's true and helpful if we understand that we tend to recharge and get energy by going out into public or making friends. But what Jung was really on about wasn't just so much our dominant function, I believe that he was very interested in our inferior function, so that what is unconscious to us or what comes up in relationships that we project onto others, that that is a place that we tend to ignore and that we have to put our focus. And I believe somewhere he said that, you know, we, we play in the inferior function or magic happens in the inferior function, meaning when we can play around in our weaker muscles, that's where growth happens. But today, I wanted to go back a little bit to my thesis that I wrote, which in part was a history of psychiatry and psychology looking at how we've evolved from a more mystified and mythological framework to theories such as even personality types or to go to a more contemporary idea such as attachment and the way that that leans heavily on the neuroscience of emotion. But to talk about this with a certain flexibility so that all the time we are recognizing that theories to a large extent are cultural. I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday about the notion of expressing one's individual feelings in relationships how we are quite hyper-focused in the West and social media and other technological means such as, you know, reviewing restaurants or putting reviews on Amazon. This feeds in some ways a kind of meta-psychological process where we're constantly reviewing how we feel about something. And this is a fairly new phenomenon. And I don't think social media per se has made a difference in that regard, except to give quite an outlet and an immediate outlet for us to express our opinions. So if you hate something, you can go home and immediately post something online and express to the whole world how awful it was. And if you think back, my wife, for instance, a big chunk of her development took place in Poland, still under communism. And, you know, there there are times and there are still many places where if you don't like something tough, you know, in fact, there may be an agenda that you are frustrated and don't like something, and that's just something you have to live with. And so there's an interesting paradox culturally when it comes to our instincts about how we express ourselves. And I guess at the heart of today's podcast, I just wanted us to hold 
in mind this notion that we can't lean too heavily on objective criteria when it comes to who we are, our emotional lives, and we can't get simplistic when it comes to self-development, as in, oh, I need to be better at this to become a more whole human being, because there are such disparate ways that we come into the world. One of the most common laments that a lot of people have are children, for instance, of immigrant families, where the immigrant family comes and very often has to work to put food on the table day and night, sometimes in a second or third or fourth language, often having emerged from very difficult conditions. And what happens in those cases is that the children can feel very dislocated. Somebody I currently speak to talks about how now that they're in a safer environment, for instance, and they were able to get their education, not really under duress, not having to flee from anywhere, the luxury of being able to focus on their emotional life is quite foreign to their parents. Actually, on a physiological level, it's a bit like kryptonite to Superman because the modus operandi for somebody who is fleeing, for instance, a uh, draconian regime, let's say, or somebody who is in political trouble and has to escape and start a family somewhere else. On a physiological level, our brain is telling us that you can't slow down and you can't stop. And there's no point if you sit down and you wallow in your own emotions, you might get eaten. You know, that's the biological drive in that regard. And if you take it a step further, let's say you do move and you move your family and, you know, you don't wallow. You put one foot in front of the other and you never stop. And then all of a sudden you see that it helps and it, it keeps your kids dry and they're fed and they get an education. Well, then why would you stop? What motivation would you have after seeing all the fruits of your labor come true according to plan? Why would you stop? And so if your kid comes to you and starts to talk about sort of existential anxieties, if they plug into a kind of contemporary environment of, of reflecting on our emotions, why would that make you feel good? Most likely, it would bring up a tremendous amount of anxiety, and you would probably try to convince or convey to your child that, look, no, nothing is good from kind of sitting and, and wallowing in your pain or your misery, just keep going. This kind of points to what the central idea in my thesis was, which really looked at the slow and sometimes dramatic transition from a time when we identified quite vehemently with mythology and religious ideas and our pain and discontent and even what we consider today to be sort of major psychological difficulties were seen in a, in a mythological or religious context. I believe at one of the conferences I attended, one of the speakers talked about how in the collected works of Carl Jung in particular, the word possession was the most widely used word to talk about emotional disturbances, which actually makes sense. Why it makes sense is that 
when we used to look at psychological disorders or people, let's just put it simply, acting out of the norm, not being able to fit into uh, the collective, we would think that something was deeply wrong with them. And often, if we think back to the Salem witch trials and women being seen as conniving and, and secretly plotting their revenge, and then they were murdered, often we would see how society would try to expel what was other and what challenged us emotionally. And even when we look at the psychological theories of, for instance, uh, Dr. Anton Mesmer, that's where the word to be mesmerized comes from. He was a physician mostly in France in the 18th century who was going around and healing people through what was called animal magnetism. And so you would have these huge outdoor public events very often where people were being healed through manipulating fluids in their bodies. And the healer was implicated, so that's very much like today where we talk about how therapists are also very much implicated in therapy. But there's one key difference that is really, really important. And the key difference, if you read Anton Mesmer's dissertation, it actually had to do with planetary and heavenly fluids. So basically, the road to healing had a lot to do with our connection with the heavens. So it was intrinsically tied to a kind of religious or metaphysical ideology. And so one of the key shifts that has taken place and actually continues to take place is this line between understanding what ails us as having this quasi-religious dimension, and it never used to be quasi, it used to be just fundamentally religious, to a, a kind of dislocated, emancipated way of viewing our emotions and our psychological life as being entirely secular. And I realize that there are entire philosophical treaties on this, whether it's from Nietzsche or Camus or Sartre and the existentialists and wrestling with, as Nietzsche put it, the death of God, of which I am not an expert in. But what I tend to focus on as a clinician who works practically with people every day is a shift towards a kind of hollowness and emptiness when we don't have any containers anymore. And how that really, in the early part of the 20th century, was still very much in flux. So, for example, when we first started to look at the connection between our physiology and our mental health, the discovery of the fact that when certain words are said to us or certain conversations take place that we experience a change in our heart rate or we begin to sweat. This was not assumed. This was actually a major discovery, which I may have mentioned before, uh, eventually led to the lie detector test. So in the early 20th century, around 1905, very primitive tools were being used to measure sweat glands. It was called the galvanometer. And Carl Jung and two other colleagues used this in a series of experiments 
And you can actually see them being done in David Cronenberg's film, A Dangerous Method, which I recommend as a film, not necessarily a historical document, but an interesting dramatization of a, a very crucial moment in history, in the history of psychiatry, where they were using these you know, quite large and crass instruments to get measurements of what happens to people when they're overwhelmed. And this is extremely useful in a contemporary sense. I talk about this all the time. This was the first discovery that actually human beings are not possessed per se when all of a sudden they their eyes go to the back of their heads or they're not listening anymore or somebody dissociates you know they're not possessed by some demon you know what's actually happening in the human nervous system is a stress response and these were the first signs that something was going on that we could actually measure physiologically and the reason that things were very much in flux is that when you look at the language that was used to talk about these early discoveries, it was very poetic. So it almost seemed like they were discovering this whole chasm underneath the level of consciousness that had heretofore been, been inaccessible in any kind of direct means. So if we think about something called free association in the work of Sigmund Freud and that tradition where it came out of hypnosis and the idea of hypnotizing someone to be able to lower their level of attention enough that they will reveal things to themselves and to others that under the, the strength of consciousness they won't be able to do. And that's where lying down in therapy, right, that's quite a particular tradition but Often, if you see any New Yorker cartoons about therapy, people will be lying down on a couch. And that came from an attempt to kind of lower, soften, emulate hypnosis to an extent where the unconscious can kind of come out unwittingly through the patient. And so the fact that you could take somebody and hook them up to a machine and measure their responses to particular words was seen as a revelation. And I believe the quote goes something like, you know, it's like fishing in the sea of the unconscious, you know? So you're catching these fishes that normally would be beneath the surface. And there was a lot of hope that, that by being able to determine what particular words and conversations affect somebody deeply, that can bring us closer to ourselves. And to a large extent, that has actually remained true. They won't talk about it in cognitive behavioral therapy because every time there's a new psychological tradition, it's seen as new and somebody discovers it. But really, there have been these very strong, sometimes very slow developments that inform our contemporary ways of treatment and of self-help which if you look at cognitive behavioral therapy, you get sheets and homework, which help you actually to look at and slow down your responses to become curious about why you have an elevated emotional response to a particular event. And you literally rate it and you literally examine 
what it is that you say and think in certain moments as a response to an emotional stimuli. And by bringing one's attention to that, you're essentially making the unconscious conscious. It's not as sexy as perhaps dreams. And forgive me, all of you cognitive behavioral therapists out there, maybe it is very sexy for you and that's just my own shortcoming. But I think that that one of the laments that a lot of people have when it comes to certain forms of treatment is that it's not, you know, it doesn't feel spiritual or it doesn't have this kind of mystical bent to it. And But I would argue that actually uh, oh, the, the same thing is happening. So there's just different roads to Mecca. And probably for many people, and people come to me and ask me about this all the time, they're not really interested in a more kind of mythopoetic process. They're very much interested in something that kind of mirrors other aspects of their life, like going to the accountant and going through numbers. And for some people, that is a really generative process that feels more organized and structured and has direction. And so I think in the end, there actually is room for many different ways of going about our healing. I had a massage the other day, and uh, it was a Hawaiian massage, which I'd never had before. And this man was wonderful, and he put seashells under the, the massage table and played Hawaiian music, and it was quite a long massage, longer than usual, and he used cocoa butter and... I was saying to myself, isn't this fascinating? I mean, there's all these different ways at, at coming at the body and, and we try different things and different kinds of exercise. So we also have to keep in mind and really temper ourselves when it comes to our emotional lives that there are probably many, many ways that we can come at that. And I'll make one more point just while we're here that when we also look at the field of coaching or motivational speaking or inspiration or, or even, you know, certain neurologists like Antonio Damasio and Stephen Porges or, you know, others that have become really famous. At the end of the day, when we consider this, often it's the personality, it's the person's commitment to a particular field. I mean, how many different gurus are there in Buddhism and other religious sects? At the end of the day, and this may sound pejorative and I don't mean it in this sense, but there is a kind of cult of personality which obviously helps human beings to project onto someone that they have the answer. I think that for a time that can be extremely healing for us and I guess there's constantly, right, in the litany of stories about gurus going sideways, people feeling disenchanted, there are letdowns, right? There's the constant repetition of the fall from the Garden of Eden. I had the opportunity to visit the Chagall Museum with my son recently, where he painted, I believe, 17 different stories from the Bible. And when we stood in front of this beautiful painting of the fall from the Garden of Eden, I said to my son, I said, remember this, this, this drama, to lean on Jung for a second, this archetype is going to repeat in your life time and time and time again. The arc of falling in love with something, of being completely identified with it, like a, a new job or an aspect of your relationship or something that you buy that you love. 
And then you're going to experience the fall. You're going to realize that you're, you know, as the Bible says that, you know, Adam and Eve realized they were naked. And you're going to experience this kind of loss of this, this numinous, this kind of, of exciting quality of something which previously in your life held such power. And often I think we react to that with a certain bitterness, right? So people will criticize their gurus for somehow not being who they said they were <laughs> or not having provided them with what they promised they would. And obviously we know a lot of stories where things you know, legitimately go badly in that regard. But I would imagine that a lot of the time we're just processing our, our disappointment that there isn't an answer that is so neatly wrapped up in, in a bow. This connects back for me to my roots because one of the first things that I ever heard about the study of the psyche or of our mental life was a quote from Jung that had to do with aberrations in our consciousness. So what he noticed was that consciousness is not seamless, that for instance, to reflect back on our projection onto gurus, we would like that to be seamless. We would like to experience ourselves as whole and as continuous. To use a, a recent example when it comes to group psychology and the storming of the Capitol in the United States, theoretically speaking, the fact that people could be mesmerized by Donald Trump meant that there would be an absence of anxiety. So decision-making is taken away from you and you can kind of relish in the, in the direction and power of, of a leader. And actually what the leader says and does doesn't really matter, which is why there is such confusion about the immorality of somebody like Trump or other leaders that that can take people with them and kind of say or do whatever they want, right? We see this to the extreme in cults where people die by suicide and you'll follow someone right to the end because in many ways it provides a kind of unified vision which relieves the human organism of the absolute despair of having to face one's own anxiety, one's own questions, the dismemberment of one's own personality. And so the larger that grows, the more power that's attributed to that. And it's a mutual relationship, right? Even when you read and you go back and read letters of various gurus, when people become disenchanted with them, they often get very angry. This includes people like Carl Jung. If you read his letters you know, Freud's letters, any of the the responses, you know, I, I do Bikram, for instance, Bikram yoga I have for, oh, I don't know, 15 years now. And of course, if you've seen the film on Netflix of just how awful that went when it came out that he was a misogynist and he was abusing people. And for so long, I mean, these are people doing yoga, for God's sake. <laughs> and for so long, people will just ignore that because of the power and the and the cult of personality. And I'm not so much turning on that. I'm not making a critique of us falling under the wing of others. I think that's a very powerful human instinct. And frankly, at times, we need that in our life. You know, we need to lean on a, on a mentor, on a coach. I guess where I'd like to bring this all together today 
is that when there are interruptions to that process in us, to go back to the beginning of today's podcast, when they were able to observe in the, in the human nervous system the fact that when something disturbs us, we can't tolerate it. That's what dissociation is. You know, when you're, when you're having a conversation with somebody, for instance, right? And all of a sudden they say something that triggers a strong emotion in you and, and they have no idea that that's going on inside of you. <laughs> you know, maybe you're worried about money or maybe you're worried about your job and, and, and maybe you're just trying to kind of save face at a party and you're making small talk and maybe you didn't even want to go out because you have a lot on your plate, but you had to for work or your spouse or your partner asked you to go out and then someone says something and what happens? It brings you right back to the very thing that you were thinking about. And then actually you have to expel a lot of energy at that point to pay attention to what the person is saying because you have all this emotional pressure that's pushing up against you, right? And so this is often what's going on in, in our lives and in conversations, which we, we don't reveal to other people. But if somebody had their hand, for instance, on your arm or on your neck, they may notice actually that you're beginning to kind of sweat a little bit or that your heart is racing. But on the surface, you know, you seem completely fine. And so the reason I am so fascinated with these ideas is because in some ways the, the process of maturation is developing a certain curiosity about these parts of our lives, right? People always say this in casual language like, oh, you, I, I have a lot of work to do or I have to work through my issues. And, and one of the reasons that I don't, I don't like that language is because it seems to suggest that there's somehow some kind of end. Like I get to the end of working through my issues or somebody will say, well, I don't want to get into a relationship until I have X figured out. And first of all, I don't know what that means. I understand that perhaps somebody would like to maybe heal from something or maybe they went through a bad relationship and they don't want to get into a new one, you know, feeling as vulnerable. But I can't tell you how many stories I hear from the couples I work with where things are not that calculated. There isn't one day where we're like, okay, now I'm completely healed and normal and a fully functioning human being and I'm going to set out and meet some other perfectly healed and fully functioning human being who has done the right amount of therapy and we're going to form this beautiful marriage together because we're two fully functioning normal human beings. No, that's not how life works. Often people meet quite as I say in French, par hasard, you know, quite inadvertently. And, and this is how, what so many couples tell me, right? Oh, I just came out of this bad relationship. I was exhausted and hurt. And all of a sudden you came along. <laughs> and, and to an extent that can make the fall even harder because, because this person seems somehow superhuman in your eyes. But just to go back to the beginning, the fall from grace is inevitable. And perhaps what we're talking about when we zero in on this transition from, uh, you know, cultures that were held together by religious ideals, and then anybody who couldn't fit in with those religious ideals was then either exiled or excommunicated or murdered, was how difficult it is for us to tolerate the other both in society and, and within ourselves. And so when contents come up in our lives that push up against 
our personalities, it is very difficult. And when we talk about adaptation or we talk about therapy or we talk about what it means to work through things in our life, we, we have to appreciate, especially in, in cultures that are highly multicultural, that there is an incredible mixture there of character organization and histories. And so it's tricky, like I said earlier, to have objective criteria for how somebody should or shouldn't behave, what level of emotion is correct or not correct. I've opened up a lot here about at least one side of my family that quite recently, looking back in my own life, you know, had arrived in Canada and on my mom's side just the decade before I was born. And that, looking back, is not actually a long time for an organism to replant itself, to grow roots. And what I've been hovering around this entire time is, is this tension between the individual and the collective. Or to even think about it differently, the tension where we kind of feel like we can vibrate with others around us or we can vibrate in a kind of harmonious way emotionally and societally with others and and how our differences emerge. And this really takes me back, to be honest, to the beginning of therapy to begin with, that much of what Sigmund Freud initially wrote about had to do with what couldn't be said or tolerated with others, right? So therapy, psychoanalytic therapy, talked about the masquerading of our wishes, of, of what is intolerable. This is where Freud's organization of the psyche, the superego, the ego and the id, right? This competition between culture and rules and values and the id, which is all that wants to come out and express itself, but is constantly being tempered. And that is different for every individual, right? Somebody who grows up in a very conservative religious dynamic they may have a very, very moralistic superego that is constantly telling them that certain thoughts and feelings are bad, intolerable, uncouth, and can't be expressed. <laughs> and this causes anxiety. And therapy back then, to some extent, was kind of like a release valve. And, and it is to this day as well. And why not, right? This is, I guess, where the sort of practical side of it comes into play, where this is not some wild goose chase towards perfection, towards some kind of equilibrium. It is a tool among other tools. If there is constantly pressure in our lives, whether at work, whether in our relationships, whether when we go into the store to behave in a certain way, then we're going to need at certain points to be able to express what it is that we can't let out. I'm in I'm in France currently, and uh, I, I speak French. And last night, this man was trying to determine where I was from. He said, "Oh, I detect an accent. Are you, are you Swiss? Are you?" He thought maybe I was Creole, <laughs> and and it's fascinating just to sort of hover in that middle ground of of difference. Which, if we are trying very hard to protect ourselves is going to cause us a tremendous amount of vulnerability and anxiety. And I think this is a really important point. So when we moved from 
an environment where mental dis-ease was seen as a kind of either aberration or an assault on the collective, right? So you take something like suicide, and there's a great book by James Hillman, which I believe is called On Suicide. And if you read that book, he talks about how in England, anybody who took their own life was deemed as, as being severely mentally ill. I believe if he writes that they were determined to have a psychosis, this is posthumously, because the religious society couldn't tolerate the idea that somebody would want to take something as sacred as human life. And so one of the ways of defending against that was to say that they were mentally ill. In Judaism, in Judaism, historically, you wouldn't be allowed to be buried in a proper cemetery if you took your own life, right? So these are really beautiful, classic examples of how disturbing emotional content in somebody's life was an assault on the collective. And so if that's in the background, right, if you're walking around and you have such punishing emotional thoughts or, or feelings that are pushing up against you, but you know that you will literally be excommunicated, that you will forever be laid to rest outside of a normal burial site. You can only imagine the pressure that that is putting on the psyche to conform. And we have such incredible examples in literature around that, right? George Orwell was, you know, that was a huge part of his oeuvre in terms of talking about the despair that people feel when they have to hide uh, who they are. And I'm holding these things up as examples to illustrate what we understand good, quote-unquote, mental health to be to a large extent, which has to do with a certain flexibility and integration of our inner lives. And I was having this debate with someone the other day, which is that Various cultures go about this in very different ways. And, and historically, in many cultures for thousands of years, there were hierarchies. You think of Confucian times. And if you've read about Confucius and that society, from my understanding and my early reading of it, it was extremely ordered. They did not have a word for disobedient. It didn't exist because everything was so fundamentally tied to a hierarchy in how you should behave that... Even this podcast and talking about the range of our responses to life just wouldn't, never mind the technology, the, the dialogue, the introspection would not have been a thing. The human organism as a piece of meat <laughs> that can be shaped in a particular way would not in that regard have come to a place where it has these introspective thoughts. That is a you know, in many cases, a very, very contemporary idea that all of a sudden the human being becomes aware of themselves in a very different way. And, and to go back to Orwell, that is something, of course, that he, you know, very much touched on, which is how does consciousness and self-awareness, how does it exist in a hostile environment where everything around it is pushing against it to disappear? And it just made me think that we can even look at, at the kind of Orwellian model as a metaphor for our own internal lives, right? That so much of what I read 
in contemporary psychology, you know, has to do with this lament of our families. Oh, I, I wasn't allowed to be who I wanted to be, or I wasn't, you know, and, and certainly, and you've heard me talk about this <clears throat> ad nauseum, that is true, that we we should from the get-go as parents, if we have the the wherewithal to tolerate the difference in our children. On the other hand, I don't know that any amount of that will will alleviate the human being of having to go through that for themselves. It may help set the stage to make that process less fraught with so much resistance, or it may save the the parental relationship from being kind of caught up in a, a negative transference around that. But I don't know if the human being is ever saved from having to wrestle with and contain the the burgeoning inner life of their own consciousness. And so that's why, to some extent, I, I want to soften and, and really temper language where we are very hard on ourselves for going through this process in our lives. And that, to go back again to my roots, which is where I started today's podcast, that is, I think, one of the great gifts that we can carry forward from philosophies and psychological philosophies that leaned and continue to lean on on literature, on religion, on mythology. The idea is not that we can just wrap ourselves in some warm blanket and, and forget about our own idiosyncratic existence. That's not the point. The point is that we can alleviate ourselves of a, of a kind of cheapening of our own emotional lives, which would look something like, why can't I just be normal and 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 keep a job and work there for 20 years? Or, you know, why can't I just be happy with my life? Or, you know, I have a roof over my head, I have food on my table. Why, why am I anxious all the time? Or why can't I just be happy for what I have? Well, because the process of coming into being <laughs> is really, 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 really hard. And although there's a lot to be said for not dismissing a socioeconomic advantage. Psychology just can't be about navel-gazing and, and forgetting that we have a, a responsibility to defend and fight for equality, right? So things aren't equal. You know, listening to a podcast and in the safety of an environment where, where we're not worried about, about perhaps being shot is a luxury. And if any of you are listening in places where you are under duress, I just want to state that that it is a luxury to be able to have the time and space to reflect on our emotional lives. That is what goes away. To go back to my earlier point, that is what goes away when we have to flee an environment or we have to spend decades under a lot of pressure, which is why often in those environments, there isn't a lot of devotion to kind of inner emotional lives because there isn't time. But on the other hand, we can't rob ourselves or diminish our own need to be fundamentally and forever committed and devoted and curious about our own development. The sophistication of medical technology following up on those early experiments by Jung and his colleagues now involves instruments such as PET scans and fMRI. And there's a great psychiatrist in Australia, last name is Pechakovsky, who was able to look at blood flow 
and determine just how quickly we defend ourselves against negative emotional content. And it's under a second. And what that means in this regard is that the more familiar we are with emotions that cause us trouble, just the more flexible we can be when they come up within us. So we're not caught off guard. And that, I think, is something that I can be fairly concrete about, that taking time to investigate, look at, talk about, you know, metabolize intergenerational stories, learning about them, just, just in, a, in a, you know, creative and, and exploratory way, it just leaves us more able to tolerate intimacy because we're less uh, caught off guard when things happen to us. And I think that really in, in some ways is, is the message here, that in those early papers, Jung determined that the more that we go over an emotion, the less labile we are when that emotion gets touched. And so the more that and this is, I guess, a good vote for some of the ways that society destigmatizes certain conversations. That that can help us feel freer to go into our emotional space. But it is still very, very hard for people. And I had some people approach me recently that wanted to remain completely anonymous, not just anonymous in the legal sense that their information is private, but anonymous to me because of how disorienting and ashamed they feel of coming to therapy. And so we had to arrange a way for them to be completely unknown. And so it's important to remind ourselves to not become simplistic when we talk about, for instance, the development of society and destigmatizing this process of investigating our, our inner lives, there is still a tremendous amount of pressure to be a certain way and to conform and a lot of shame that can come up in all of us, including myself, when parts of us are on display. And that may continue in various ways, but I'm certainly an advocate, and this is one of the reasons that I started this podcast, to just have the courage to open up with each other more, not, hopefully not for some kind of performative uh, vulnerability. <laughs> I worry about that sometimes. But more that we just slow down and take the time, whether it's with, through connecting with me in this podcast or other areas of your life, to uh, yeah, really investigate where you come from bring a certain kindness when you're stuck and a curiosity to what you're going through because, and this will be my last point, it isn't so much that historically when much of our anxiety was tied in with, with religion that that was necessarily a bad thing. I mean, for me, that, that's just too simplistic. We've evolved in a particular way for a reason and there was a reason at some point when human beings became aware of themselves and conscious that we developed thousands of religions to somehow contain the inexpressible and the overwhelming nature of realizing that we are alone. And so to be together 
provides a degree of comfort, and nothing's wrong with that. But we can't put the genie back in the bottle for many of us, and therefore we are left to have to go through, and this is the work of a, of a German philosopher, Wolfgang Giegrich, you know, we're left to really vehemently pursue this intellectual line of, of how do we then go through and into the emotional and intellectual contents of our life without resorting to a kind of dissociative blanket <laughs> that can be temporary and necessary, but, but eventually will we'll fail. And then if we disguise our helplessness as resentment in that regard for the things that fail in our lives, I think we're impoverished to a degree. We abandon the kind of simple sadness of what we know to be true, that things don't last forever, that things that we fall in love with or parts of our lives that keep us afloat, you know, eventually have an end as well. And that's sad. But as one of my teachers would always remind me, <laughs> you know, therapy was not about being, uh, becoming happier. Therapy was maybe becoming a little bit sadder, but a little bit wiser. And I want to thank you all for being here today. And please share this. It is so lovely to hear from you. Uh, you can reach me, feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com. Again, if it feels right and you're talking to friends or you think this would help somebody, I would, I would really love for you to share it. And please find me on Instagram if you're on Instagram. I am Mitchell Smolkin. I post content every day there uh, related to this podcast, also related to psychology, and I'm engaging with people all the time there. So I would love to, uh, to see you there if it, if it feels right for you. Until the next time, I remain faithfully yours.